Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. This is the Behave Yourself podcast, a podcast about behavioral science in the global south, brought to you by the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. I'm your host, Linda Kimaru. This year, the theme at the Geneva Peace Week is Rebuilding Trust After Disruption, Pathways to Reset International Cooperation. The 2020 edition of this event seeks to answer one big question, How can peace builders unify to successfully build peace in a divided world? So, naturally, here at Behave Yourself, we ask down why a lack of trust in international cooperation can hinder peace building efforts. To help answer this question, our qualitative researcher Amy sat down with Salim. I am an associate at the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics, and my role in Busara is primarily... Salim is an associate at Busara Center who designs and develops research and advisory projects focused on using behavioral science to alleviate global poverty. And Dan Schreiber. So indeed, my name is Dan Schreiber. I'm um, in... Dan is from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD's Crisis and Fragility Team. OECD recently released their flagship publication, States of Fragility, that gives an up-to-date analysis of international approaches to working in situations of fragility. Dan, who's written a chapter in the report titled Fit for Fragility, together with Salim, We'll explore how behavioral science can help us figure out why peace-building initiatives aren't working. Welcome to Episode 8 of Behave Yourself. How can behavioral science help us to think differently about fragility? So Dan, I'm going to pass the mic over to you. Um, The OECD recently released its 2020 States of Fragility report. Your chapter in particular is called Fit for Fragility. Can you help us break down this title? Who is supposed to become Fit for Fragility? Yes, indeed. Fit for Fragility is about ensuring a a better match between the way we engage uh, as mostly international actors involved in Uh, humanitarian development and peace activities in a fragile context and the context itself. Mm. So um, how can we ensure is kind of the central question that the way we structure ourselves and the way we respond is adapted to the specificities of that type of context. Fragile context, in other words, places that are affected by uh, uh, a multitude of, of drivers of uh, volatility, of complexity, uh, of, uh, of uncertainty um, in the area of uh, 
social, political, security systems, or simply getting uh, functioning roads and electricity, um, those places that are really at the bottom uh, tier of, uh, of development uh, indicators tend to have um, uh, to, to face intractable types of, of problems or perceived as such. And where uh, when you try to intervene in those countries, basically that is also the environment in which you, you need to function. So the assistance that we're trying to provide is aiming at resolving issues, but we ourselves, in the way we operate in those contexts, are affected by those same problems. And, and that basically means that we, um, we cannot uh, use business as usual when operating in contexts like that. Our ways of operating need to be adapted to those contexts. Absolutely. You talk about ways of operating in these countries, and I can imagine that trust plays an integral role in your working relations. So can you talk a little bit more about why there is a lack of trust? Well, the first element that you, that you uh, can think about when thinking of, of trust is, uh, is at the societal level. When you're dealing with a country that has been affected, for example, by years of war or instability or uh, issues with the government, the governance systems, you are facing context in which uh, people have over time either lost their trust in each other, in, uh, in governments, in uh, social structures surrounding them, and in their own ability to thrive and to survive. So, 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 so this type of context basically is extremely complicated for, uh, uh, to, to progressively restore the type of confidence people have to, to build a, be a better future. When we at Busara read your chapter, we were really struck by just how much of what you say resonates with behavioral scientists. But of course, the OECD does not think of itself as a behavioral science organization. So Salem, when you read Dan's chapter, Fit for Fragility, what behavioral concepts did you recognize? From the chapter and really a lot of, um, from quite a few of the points that Dan has raised, there were a lot of things that jump out to us. Um, when we think about research on decision-making in context of uncertainty, this is an area where behavioral economics in particular has really thrived, um, developing new perspectives to understand what may be termed as irrational behavior in different um, decision-making contexts. So in particular, the field has done a lot of research when it comes to understanding how things like um, time scarcity or the lack of information or different risks, how they influence economic decision making. And a lot of these insights can be applied to some of the concepts that are raised in the Fit for Fragility report. So an example of this is, um, for instance, risk-seeking behavior. Um, the report identifies that it's low amongst um, those who are, who are in the development space, um, and in some cases, this can lead to um, opportunities of missed, missed opportunities for greater impact. Um, so this is in line with some of the behavioral findings that individuals are less likely to take risks or gains and are more likely to take risks to avoid losses instead. So for, for instance, if you think about, um, if you're given the choice of 
whether you would take a coin, a coin toss where you would be guaranteed to win $50, no matter what side the coin falls, you would take it over a chance of winning $75 if it lands on heads, but nothing if, if it lands on tails. And this is like really in line with um, prospect theory, which is a, a, a very cornerstone concept in behavioral, um, behavioral science. And something else which um, Dan touched on is time preferences. And behavioral science identifies that as one of really the strong preferences, that there is really a strong preference for short-term gains over long-term benefits. Um, so in the context of, behavior, of, um, of humanitarian work, uh, we can see this in the fact that there is always a high amount of resources being pledged towards short-term relief. And there's little aimed at um, developing this kind of long-term stability, which countries in a fragile context really need. Um, and then the report also talks about like how collaboration and partnerships are um, are challenging contexts where institutions are either weak or unaccountable. And the effect of this is really that um, decision making in this context then happens not at an not through institutional consensus, but more through the will of a few. And if we think about like the um, the important role that um, strong institutions actually play, it's um, their role is really important in terms of elevating opinions and being able to um, understand the consequences of choices and going through a process that ensures that the decisions that are made are optimal. Um, even though like the downside of it is usually that they're, they tend to be slow and cumbersome. Um, but when you look at institutions which aren't strong, you end up in situations where decisions are made very instantly um, by a small number of people. And these usually are, um, the decisions that they usually come up with are usually um, influenced sometimes by either cognitive biases or misconceptions or general mistaken beliefs um, about the context that may result in, um, in errors in terms of the decisions that they're making. It's time for a very quick break and your behavioral science term of the week. Except this week, it's a little different. You've heard Dan talk about fragility, but what exactly does that mean? The definition, according to OECD, of fragility is the combination of exposure to risk and insufficient coping capacity of the state, system, and or communities to manage, absorb, or mitigate those risks. Fragility can lead to negative outcomes, including violence, the breakdown of institutions, displacement, humanitarian crises, or other emergencies. Now, back to the episode. What's interesting about fragility is that it suggests that countries are not able to deal with shocks very well. Um, so while they might be in rapidly changing situations, Often, for many people living in so-called fragile countries, their experience is one of an unchangeable status quo. There's hardened power structures. There's often fixed distribution of resources. So it's somewhat the opposite of something that's fragile and breaks easily. Um, Dan, you in your chapter argue for the need to strengthen systems to counter fragility, um, but this requires an unpacking of the interaction of risks and sources of resilience. Uh, for our listeners, this might sound really abstract, especially when you're working on a local level peace building program. Um, so how can you kind of break down these abstract political concepts and make them meaningful for the local level? 
Thank you. I, th I mean, I think um, what you just mentioned is extremely uh, important and relevant. Uh, it is this paradox between, on the one hand, a sense of immanence and, and a lack of change in the situation, and on the other hand, very often a very volatile context uh, with uh, rapidly changing day-to-day -day situations and this sense of, of being entrapped into, in, in the now and uh, a difficulty also to project yourself in the future and in change. And I think um, this is something that we have indeed uh, seen in many of the contexts that, uh, that we dealt with, not just from national actors uh, who, who are coping with the situation, but also from international actors who are trying to to find their way also in this in this uh, in this complex setting, and so navigating uh, between the short term and the long term, and finding a way to set objectives about I mean having a vision for change over time um, is absolutely central. Uh, but at the same time, you need to maintain flexibility on the short term horizon. And you need to ensure basically that you're able to adapt to change and to and to to new information that you may receive. Um, so this is uh, there is a need to juggle between those two elements that is uh, that is quite evident. So turning to the question of risks and resilience, um, I think in essence, if we want to really understand uh, what we're talking about uh, at a very practical level. The, the, the central question is twofold. On the one hand, it is ab about understanding across the multiple dimensions of what uh, makes a context, uh, a context fragile. So the social, the economic, the security, uh, the political and the environmental realm, understanding across all those, those aspects, um, what are the, the types of vulnerabilities that people face, um, what is impeding uh, their ability to, uh, to, to resist to, to shocks or to, to absorb those shocks, um, and, and basically, uh, so it, it's about looking at, at the, the, the risk component, understanding the nature of those risks, and understanding basically the, um, I mean, how you can build at individual level, at household level, at community level, and at national level, um, what systems can be can already exist or can be put in place in order to strengthen the resilience. Um, so that, that that's what we're what we're dealing with. In practice, this idea of risk and re resilience is actually utilized in a number of contexts to analyze the situation and to develop a dialogue between humanitarian development and peace actors uh, because it provides a language that everyone can understand and that is actually um, that that means something both for a humanitarian worker and for a peace building actor and for a diplomat and for um, someone involved in the in the, in the security sector um, so across this broad realm uh, that common language of risk and, re and resilience tends to resonate well. 
Thank you, Dan. Um, I'm a big fan of talking about this um, shift from risk thinking to resilience thinking and having the assumption that people are the experts of their own lives. Um, so Busara mm -hmm. is also hosting a session at Geneva Peace Week, where we seek to unpack how to use behavioral insights to co-create and define mutual accountability in peace building. This is obviously a really new way of thinking about this, but Salem, I wonder if you have a thought on how one could use behavioral concepts to bridge this high-level thinking that Dan was just talking about with local experience. Sure. So the key contribution that um, that behavioral science can make is in understanding the experiences at the individual level and how these can influence behavior at a higher level. So, for instance, behavioral science can help to understand the perceptions of a, of a highly subjective concept, such as fairness, uh, which can also differ across um, uh, different contexts at the individual, the communal, and the social levels. And how these narratives are then formed that may lead to um, mistrust and instability, which can then be passed down through the generations and then become um, entrenched um, systematically. So behavioral science can also help to inform service delivery so that it does not um, perpetuate this legacy of conflict and exclusion that has been taking place previously. Um, and in addition, behavioral science can also help to identify different behavioral mechanisms and drivers that can be leveraged to drive desired behaviors, which can lead to higher levels of trust. So for instance, um, at Bustara, we've conducted um, research on self-efficacy in Uganda and how this can help to drive civic participation. And what we found is that internally induced self-efficacy can help to lead to greater willingness to attend community meetings. Fantastic. Um, this is definitely a cornerstone of our work, identifying behavioral mechanisms and drivers in order to inform service delivery and also bolster higher levels of trust. So Dan and Salem, I'm going to leave it here. Many thanks. We will continue our discussion behaviors with a bit more time on the full Busara podcast. If you're tuning in from the Geneva Peace Week, please join us for a longer conversation in the podcast that's based off of the Busara event on November 2nd. We'll see you there. And that brings us to the end of the first part of this conversation between Salim from the Busara Center and Dan Schreiber from OECD. Many thanks to both of them for making the time. If you would like to listen to the rest of this episode, you can check out the Behave Yourself podcast on Spotify. Behave Yourself is a podcast produced by the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. You can find us on Twitter at Busara Center and read more about the work that we do on the Busara blog on Medium. Until next time, remember, behave yourself. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.